Back to Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Indy. Sirius XM 104. All right. He's here. Big fan of our next guest. He's an award-winning journalist, national security correspondent for The Nation, author of uh, the best-selling book, Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army. He's got his new book. It is out, Dirty Wars. The World is a Battlefield. It's out now, and uh, Companion Documentary is screening in select theaters. If you watch the trailer for that, you're going to be immediately impacted and excited uh, to watch the movie. DirtyWars.org, by the way. Jeremy Scahill, psyched that you came in. I, I, I went to bed last night going, oh, Jeremy's only calling in because he's got a late night. Then I'm told you're coming in, and then I tell my wife, well, I got to go in. And she says, why do you have to go in? I goes, because Jeremy Scahill is my uh, uh, Wayne Dyer. <laughs> I just came straight from the club to here, so like that's how it works. You had a yeah, late night, right? Late night. No, I was I was doing an interview in like Japan at three in the morning. I'm very big in Japan. Are you big in Japan? No. <laughs> you're a bad person. Like you're a bad man. I saw you, you are... tweet that about me. My mom saw that. She's very upset. What did so she what? say? She's... So why is this guy saying you're a bad man? What have you done? That, well, first, she, of all, first of all, she assumes I did something. That let's, you're, you know. let's talk about your mom following Twitter mentions. I love that. She does. Yeah. My mom has no idea. My, my mom is totally, she trolls me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I mean. I get tweets from her like, you never call. I guess that's funny. I guess what I mean is by you're a bad man is like you're, you are like, you're a, you live a kind of a pretty dangerous life and people don't. Don't quite realize that, but journalists, we always, you know, thank you for your service and, and your courageous, uh, you know, uh, firefighter, police officer or, or military. But as we've learned over the past two years, especially in Syria, journalists, journalism, the type of journalism that you do is literally right in line, if not more dangerous than, than all the professions I just mentioned. And that's what I mean by you're a bad man. Like you, you live the, a pretty dangerous life. You, you know, um, uh, so tell your mom, that's what I meant. I, I, I will. Uh, one of the things that that uh, that I I thought about when the when the, when I actually saw like the physical copy of the book or when I saw like our our film for the first time at Sundance, I mean it was, I, I was sort of overwhelmed thinking about all of the journalists that I worked with in like Somalia and Yemen and Afghanistan, like lo- local journalists whose names you know who get who do get kidnapped and do get killed. The kind of people that work with the kind of people like me are taking more of a risk than I am. Um, you know, I mean, I think of people in Somalia. Somalia's had I think almost thirty journalists have been killed in the last year in Somalia. They're all Somalis. Um, and and it's barely registers a blip on the radar. And you know when Richard Engel, who's a great reporter for NBC News, uh, you know was kidnapped briefly in Syria. You know it it, it became a, like an international incident. But um, you know there are multiple journalists being held in Syria that are not um, you know famous and on you know the nightly news with Brian Williams. And um, and and they're really the ones that pay the highest price. People like me, we're parachute journalists. We come into a place, we do our story, and then I go back to the you know baby strollers and lattes of Park Slope. But you know, these journalists are the ones that live that. That's their life. They don't have the option to leave. So I think about them. I mean, yeah, it's dangerous to do what we do, but I always think of people that, you know, that's where they live. Well, let's continue down this line of modesty that you're taking. But but in, in that, why do those journalists in, in Iraq or Somalia you're talking about or Libya, why do, that, that, that live there, they don't get to go back to Park Slope, uh, why do they do it? I know why you do it. We've talked about this in the past, but why do they do it? I mean, I've I, I think there's you know different answers to that question depending on who you ask. But one thing that that I've seen that's the money sort of in Somalian journalism, the, I would right. imagine, very lucrative. They make huge money. No, um, you know, I think part of it is that is is that they're real reporters and they they believe that they they want to see a different media culture in their country. In the case of Somalia, I met so many young Somali journalists that admire, and I, th- I think this is a little misguided, admire our media culture in the United States. I mean, they want to have something that resembles a serious media, and they believe that. One of the ways to change the reality in their country is to get information to people, um, you know, that that they can use to make decisions about what policies they want to support. I think there's a lot of passionate journalists that you meet on the ground in these countries who care deeply about their country. Some people probably just want money, or that's like the best way they can make a living. And there is a racket operation that goes on with certain fixers and others where they'll they'll charge you the the platinum rate, you know, to to work with them. But I mean, I guess it, you know it's fair that they do it because they're taking the real risks. But mostly, it's they're motivated by a sense of wanting change in their countries. Let's talk about your uh, the book Dirty Wars: The World Is a Battlefield and and the accompanying movie. Take me quickly through kind of the the evolution of the idea. This is a big book. It's got a lot in it. It's got a huge index because you're a good uh, reporter and journalist, uh, and you reference everything and source everything. But but when did you say, hey, I want to write a, 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 a kind of a, a really uh, big uh, book that really you know talks about all these different places I've been and this entire was it. 
was the original idea this book, or did this evolve over your travels and, and all of your reporting over the past few years? Yeah, that's an. I mean, it's a good question. It I, would have been great if I could have come up with just the last sentence and not yeah. fucking hemmed and hawed <laughs> before I got to it like a jackass. No, 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 it's cool. I, I gave a talk last night at Barnes and Noble, and I still, I think I'm still talking there right now. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can go over to the Barnes and Noble intro back end. I'm still giving You're still a there, speech. Right? I'm the, yeah, I'm pulling my pulling my Fidel Castro. Um, you know, so I wrote this book, and I've been on your show talking about about Blackwater, uh, the mercenary company, which has right. been gone through like five different name changes, and uh, over the past year, they're the Fluffy Bunny Brigade now. You know, they were Z, and then their Academy, and now they're that, right? Yeah, Eric Prince, work. you know, Eric Prince, the owner of Blackwater, I understand, was in New York recently at the Tribeca, attending the Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> And uh, then outside you know. your window, I would. And imagine. then right, yeah, he and I met up and had coffee. But he, you know, he wanted to do Jaeger shots. I'm like, Eric, you know, I mean, I, we could do that, but uh, let's uh, no. Um, so I, I did the book on I did the book on Blackwater, and and I I became I'm an obsessive compulsive person. I became obsessed with the mercenary company when I met them in New Orleans. You know, during Hurricane Katrina, I see these guys on the streets that look like you know paramilitaries and end up discovering that they're Blackwater guys. You know, the people that have been operating Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, anyway, I, I end up doing like a dozen stories on them. It turns into a book. And when the book comes out, you know, of course, I got I got attacked by a lot of people on the right. Um, and uh, and, you know, a lot of uh, there, there was a, a sort of even I had a bad experience with John Stewart. He's, but my, he tossed my book off of his table. He defended the Blackwater guys, um, you know, when I was on his show. And then eventually when they massacred all these people, he did a sort of culpa, you know, where he said, you know, oh, this was a terrible interview I did with this guy. I was wrong about Blackwater. And, and I saw Stewart on a plane, actually, during the uh, when we were flying from the Democratic to the Republican convention in uh, in 08. And uh, and I walk on and he's sitting in first class and he's got a Yankees cap on kind of pulled down. And I walk on and I see one of the producers and they know me. And I said hi to them. And Stewart looks up at me and he looks down and then he takes his hat off and he goes, all right, all right, I'm going to say it. And it's like a plane full of journalists. He was like, you were right. And I was wrong. Let's let's bring this to an end because he got so much email about that um, because, the, you know, the, the Blackwater, that was that was not a good company, man. They were a notorious group of thugs. Um, I tell you that story because I started getting emails and meeting guys who were Navy SEALs or Army Rangers who would come up to me at events or send me a note and they would say, you know, I, I don't care much for your politics, but you were right on that company. And I got to I started to get to know guys and um, and I ended up meeting up with some of these people and they saw that I was like a normal guy and that I'm not the kind of jerk who's like, well, if I don't agree with your politics, then, you know, you should be a war criminal and should go to prison. You know, I'm a normal guy. And, and I started getting to know them personally and it changed my view on the world. And so I became obsessed with this world of covert operations and the guys that do these operations and wanted to dig deeper into that world. And so I tried to write a book that tells the stories of guys who are commandos from the United States and then weave it in with the stories of the people who are on the other side of the night raids or the cruise missile strikes. And so, you know, I tried to write it as narrative nonfiction um, so that ordinary folks who are just riding on the subway or, you know, reading after a long day of work don't feel like they're in school, but are actually reading a story that um, is is a kind of thriller in a way because you have these commando units that are not officially uh, in existence on paper and then you have ordinary folks on the ground that are facing down against terrorism in their own country and then our commandos bursting through their doors so it's a you know it, it was it was it started from the Blackwater project well you just brought up a lot of questions as you're talking there but one obvious one is you know the, these these kind of you know military types that really have a problem with your with your say your politics uh, i think it's fair to say uh, like myself obviously and because of you uh we're anti-war but you also put yourself in the middle of wars all the time and i would imagine they respect you for that because it's not like you're sitting at home in your liberal armchair and and throwing bombs the way i do uh verbally in the comfort of my studio you're actually going to these places and they can't help but respect the fact that you're going uh, to places that, in in some cases, they wouldn't even go to, uh, and and reporting from there is that fair? That you do the, do you hear that from them? Yeah. Well, I think yeah. There's I think there's a way in which uh, you know we we can relate um, to each other. I mean, we there's there are certain things that you that that are sort of common in all uh, in all war zones, and and um, and I think that yeah that those guys I, I I do think there's a certain degree of respect when you go to a place you know at, that you've earned the right to sort of say what you think about it because a lot of guys will you know if you're talking about Afghanistan if you've not been to Afghanistan and you're trying to talk to you know, an army ranger who's been there on multiple tours he he's not going to sit there and and listen to you whining about how much you can't stand the war. But if you if you say, well, look, I was in 
Nangahar province when, you know, this bomb went off and, you know, what I saw on the ground was X, Y, and Z. I mean, people, they, they are going to respect that. They're going to respect that you were there and they might disagree with your ultimate conclusions about the war. But I mean, I, I was humbled by and learned a lot from uh, the military folks that I've met over the years because it's, it's not a homogenous bunch. Yeah. I've met a heck of a lot yeah. of guys who started off after 9-11, ooh-rah, America, you know, F yeah, like, you know, the uh, the, the, the sort of uh, Team America no stuff. No more language restrictions but on people, this channel, buddy. Oh. Yeah, anything you want. I have, you know. You're Jeremy I was, I was raised as a Catholic, man. I can't, I can't be having So was and, I. You know, okay. Go ahead, fucker. Right, good. <laughs> Uh, we try not to, but if you do, if if you got to, but no. but no, I totally agree with you. I've been working with this uh, group IAVA, and I know I don't even know anybody in the military. Yeah, Paul Reichoff, yeah, and, Reichoff yeah. and and all these guys. We do a segment every week with them, and and you're absolutely right about them not being homogenous. And I've I've had my ignorance lifted a trem- every week. And those guys say. are great. I mean, those guys are so great in in trying to fight for better care for veterans, yeah. um, you know, coming home and 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 really pushing on the VA issue. And I mean, I mean, Paul. And Paul's book was great that he wrote about his Chasing experience ghosts. in Iraq. Awesome Chasing Ghosts, yeah. right? And he's, uh, you know, he's an amazing guy. Um, but I know a lot of folks who are not dyed in the wool anti-war people, but they're against these wars now, yeah. and they're not signing petitions or speaking out. Maybe someday they will, but they've seen it firsthand on the ground, and they they know that Afghanistan is uh, is going way way south. I, I don't know anyone who thinks we should be staying in Afghanistan that's been fighting there. Uh, I know a lot of people in Afghanistan who, who who think we should because they're making them plenty of money, right? Well, no, that's a, I mean there's. Well, Hamid Karzai's family is totally attached to organized crime and was on the CIA payroll. And I mean, there's it's like everywhere. Gangsters and warlords and yeah. contractors make the money. The rank and file soldiers pay the price alongside, uh, in, you know, infinite number of civilians. But in terms of Americans and, and, and military members and their families, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty conclusive on that on that conflict at this point. Although we we're, let's not talk about Afghanistan because nobody's talking about Afghanistan and the 60,000 troops we have there. So let's just ignore it. Jeremy Scahill. Well, there's the war within the war, too, which is what I, a lot of what I write about in the book about Afghanistan is that we have the conventional war, you know, the Marines and others that you see. And then there's the war you don't see, which is these thousands of night raids that are conducted every year. And, um, you know, we know everything about the bin Laden raid down to the fact that the dog's name was Cairo and he was a Belgian Melanois. Um, but we don't know. We know almost nothing about, uh, you know, the thousands of other raids that took place that very same year in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Well, let's talk about that then. And I was because I was joking about not talking about Afghanistan. We're talking to Jeremy Scahill. The book is Dirty Wars. So these night raids, um, they're pretty horrific. We've I've heard stories of, of uh, American special operators going in, killing people and tearing the bullets out of their bodies. And uh, you have, I think, a, a, a a witness attesting to that in the in the movie trailer for Dirty Wars, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, these night war, these night raids were supposed to have been ended, or at least Hamid Karzai uh, demanded that they end. Uh, what are they? Uh, why are Afghans so upset about that? Are they continuing? Are they effective? Right. Well, you know, so so you have uh, you have this situation where the mandate of the special ops forces inside of Afghanistan, and in fact globally, is to take down high value targets in Afghanistan. You know, high value target now has been defined as a sheep herder who may be attached to the Taliban. I mean, they've just killed their way down the list and they're hunting down people who are only fighting the U.S. because we're in their valley. And, um, you know, m- my buddy Matt Ho, who was a, a former a diplomat. very close personal friend of mine. Yeah, great. Really good. And he's yeah. an amazing he actually retweeted guy. that you were going to be on the night. Oh, cool. And I was like, oh, right. <laughs> that's cool that Matt likes uh, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah go he's, ahead. Yeah, and I, I mean, I met Matt shortly after he resigned. Just for people who don't know him, he was a combat Marine in Iraq then became a, a civilian official in Afghanistan working for the State Department in Zabul province, which is a total hellish place. And, you know, basically came to a conclusion that uh, the war was benefiting the Taliban and that the, you know, it's against the strategic interest of the U.S. And he resigns. And it was a very bold move. And yeah. all these officials, U.S. officials, they basically tried to force him not to do it. And yep. they were offering him other jobs. I mean, they did not want him to speak out. And he, at great personal risk, said, no, I have to say this. And he came out of the closet, so to speak, and said, I'm against this war. And it was a very big story when he did it. Um, and, you know, Matt, Matt Ho was the person who, I, when I met him, really helped me to understand how devastating the night raids were to what the U.S. said its mission was in Afghanistan. So you have these raids where there's very flimsy intelligence that indicates someone is a Taliban coordinator, someone is a suspected militant, and um, and, and we're going to go and take them down. And we will either capture them, or if there's any fire whatsoever, we're going to kill them. So what, what often happens is that Someone has a person, an Afghan has a personal grudge to settle against their neighbor. And so on, on one day, one of the brothers goes over to the U.S. base and says, you know, 
There's a Taliban bomb making factory down the street from me. And then a couple days later, they send, you know, the sister goes over and says, uh, you know, oh, I think there's some Taliban people in this house. And then they get their cousin from another village to come in and say, I saw some guys, you know, bringing in RPGs to this compound. Boom, we've got three human intelligence reports that there's a Taliban compound. We're going to raid this place. So in the middle of the night, they go and um, and they start to, you know, mount roofs and houses, jump over walls of the kalas, the compounds where they're in, and they start to conduct their raid into the house. Well, the Afghan guys in the house wake up. They think the Taliban is coming to get them or they think someone's coming to rob, you know, their women or their animals. And so they get grab their shotgun and they come outside. Oh, the Americans see them. They got a gun. This is a Taliban place. Boom. It's on firefight. Everybody gets killed in the place. At the end of the day, it's like death by Americans. It's people settling grudges and manipulating the way that because the, because work. what happened there is you, these three intelligence sources that you're mentioning. It's not that they're doing anything. They're with pissed the off because someone stole some of their goats, you know, right. a few years earlier, and they want to get back at them. So they screw their wife. Right. It could be anything. Right. Yeah, or, yeah, I mean, there's... I remember seeing that in Generation Kill, uh, that scenario yep. in Generation Kill. They're all go oh, bomb that one, bomb that one, right. and 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 then you find out later, uh, no, this this guy didn't do anything. Oh, he's working with Saddam. No, he's not. You just don't like him. Well, there, there was, a, I mean, to to jump, uh, you know, a little bit over to a different part of the world. There was an incident that I write about in the book in Yemen where the U.S.-backed dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh told the U.S. that a certain individual was an al-Qaeda member, and it turned out that he was just his political opponent and was the deputy governor of a province who was helping to organize against him. Well, I think it's wrong that Mark Sanford is currently doing that to uh, Colbert's sister right now. Same thing. <laughs> Same exact thing. Pointing to a cardboard cutout of her and saying that uh, she's got uh, WMD. Oh, my God. He's totally lost his mind. Have you been following that? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I, he, I try. He, yeah, he gave out his cell phone number, Mark Sanford. Right. He's. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I, I've been looking at his OK Cupid profile, and it's uh, it's, it's um, it's interesting to say the least. <laughs> Sanford has an OK Cupid profile. Yeah, it's, it's he's got some nice pictures on there. Uh, yeah. so so when his we, Christian Mingle one though is a little bit more appropriate for your audience. I that's think. true. That's a good point. They're probably a sponsor. Uh. So we're talking to Jeremy Scahill. The book is Dirty Wars. And and you know, back to those night raids for a minute, though. Um, I want to get to, to, to drones with you as well. But, I mean, the idea that we conduct these night raids, the idea that we're in, that we've invaded or occupied countries, how come it's so hard, do you think, for Americans to understand the perception of the guy you just described who's, you know, minding his own business in the middle of the night? And, and who is raided by American special operators and maybe his, his son, maybe his daughter or wife is killed. How come it's tough for Americans to understand the perception of those people that are uh, the victims of our, in this case, night raids or, you know, drone attacks? Just on that issue, it's, it's very difficult. For yeah. us. We're, we're terrorized and, and totally ang- and, 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 and just so furious about what happened in Boston. Mm. But we are actually committing violence and, and, and too often against innocent people all over the world right now. And we can't seem to understand their perception. Yeah. I mean, you remember the, uh, earlier this week, this uh, this young man from Yemen testified in yeah, front of the Senate, Faraya yeah. al-Muslimi. And I know him. I spent time with him in Yemen. He's a really impressive young guy um, who has tremendous admiration for the United States. And um, in fact, lived he, here, was educated. He, here. Oh yeah, 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 and 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 an amazing, smart guy who is militantly opposed to Al Qaeda. I mean, I remember I was up at a cot chew with him and a bunch of other people. You know, you chew this leaf. You've chewed that stuff a lot. Yeah. What's in, its in effect Yemen. on you? Well, you know, is it's it like it's a, weed. What's it's it like? A, it's a stimulant. I mean, it's um, oh. uh, you know, they 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 say that when you're chewing cot, the Yemenis have a phrase that you're building castles in the sky. You know, your sort of imagination is running <laughs> wild. I mean, I had made so many plans at the end of one night. I was going to start like an auto importing business with some <laughs> Yemeni friends. We had this whole wow. thing about the port of Aden. We were going to bring in these cars and to resell. I mean, and then the next day, I'm like. Did I seriously just make a plan to go into business with these <laughs> Yemeni sheikhs? No, but it's how you get things done in Yemen. I mean, right. U.S. diplomats are because of our, our sort of you know ridiculous policies on drugs in this country. U.S. diplomats are are forbidden from chewing cotton in Yemen. And if you don't chew cot in Yemen, you're getting nothing. You, you, you're, you're not going to be invited. No right. one wants you around. It's like they'll give you the stink eye. It's like, oh, who's the dude not chewing the cot? So be like not drinking tea in Afghanistan. Right. It's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to have my, uh, you know, my latte over here. No, but you, yeah, you, 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 you have to roll local and try to, you know, relate to people, which is one of the reasons why we have no, no good intelligence in Yemen is that our personnel are forbidden from, from participating in what is a daily ritual, which ritual of almost every single person in Yemen. So, I mean, this is a tangent, but I got you get to know people over these cot chews and 
once you do that, doors open up to you and you're able to get that permission that you need to go to this village or to meet this sheikh or to go, in our case, to the scene of where there was a missile strike and interview survivors of it in a very dangerous part of Yemen. Um, but this guy, Farah al-Muslimi, one of the things, the points that he made after Boston is he said the difference between uh, us and a lot of the journalists that are interviewing me is that we're against both Boston and your drone bombings. We're against what happened in Boston and we condemn it and we condemn what you do. And I've heard so many people in Yemen say, you know, you see al-Qaeda as terrorism, but we see the drones as terrorism. And these are people that hate al-Qaeda, but they're saying your drones are worse than al-Qaeda to us because you're you're killing our people. But and we are targeting militants and, and the terrorists and are targeting... Aren't, but, yeah. We aren't. Right. Uh, we we the American military um, and the Obama administration, et cetera, uh, Bush administration. They're targeting militants. Terrorists are targeting uh, innocent civilians yes. for political reasons. So they're not equal, right? Well, I mean, you, you could say if there's a if there's a strike where there are you know let's say there's four guys who are uh, who are plotting to bring down a cargo plane, um, and they're you know we, there's actual intelligence that they. Um, are engaged in this plot, and they're going to get this package, which is one of the, something that happened. They are going to have a package that they send to a Jewish community center in the United States, and they want to board it on a DHL plane, and it's it's disguised as a cartridge, and you know that that's their, you know, that you found their evil lair. Um, th- those kinds of operations are rare, and that would be a case where, yeah, you've taken down a cell of people that were plotting to attack the United States, and I think a lot of the public believe that that those are the strikes that we're doing, and that that's the end of the story. But what, what's actually happening is, in addition to that, and far more frequently, is these things called signature strikes, where because we don't have good intelligence on who's who in Yemen on the ground, we've decided that certain regions of the country are red zones, are these hot zones of terrorists. And um, anyone who is a military-age male and has had any contact with someone that the U.S. is monitoring is preemptively considered to be a terrorist themselves. And so there have been a number of strikes where large groups of young men have been bombed, and the U.S. claims that they're terrorists when we don't know their identity and we don't have any actual intelligence that they're involved with anything nefarious except hanging out in their valley. And then we kill them. And Yemen is a very tribal-centric society. So when you kill a bunch of guys from the you know, Al-Awlaq tribe uh, and they didn't have anything to do with terrorism, um, their, all, that whole tribe is now going to declare a war against you. And that's what we're doing in Yemen. It's a hornet's nest now with what we're stirring up in pursuit of, admittedly, very, very bad people that have an intent to do harm to the United States. But in the process of trying to kill them, I think we're encouraging a, an increase in radicalization and, and potential terrorism against the United States. So it's not that I don't think that, that I'm in the dark about there are bad people in the world. I, I know that. And there are people that want to do harm to us and bring our airplanes down and blow up subways. No question those people exist. The question I have is, what? how actually do we stop that threat? And I don't believe it's by drone bombing Yemen. I think we're going to increase the threat. And you know, I, I think I, I'll defend that position to the end of the earth because I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen people become radicalized in Afghanistan, victims of night raids saying to me, we were supporting the Americans now I want to put on a suicide vest and blow myself up at an American base after you know my wife was killed in this night raid. I mean that those are that's real revenge is a real sentiment. And, uh, we know it well, right? I mean we were we just watching well. at the Bush at the Bush uh, Library thing yesterday. They're playing those clips again of Bush saying, you know, the people that did this are going to hear from us. Well, if you're in Yemen or you're in Afghanistan and 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 your village was bombed, you know, you you may not be on a pile of rubble with a megaphone, but you're you have the same. Reaction, which is, I'm, I want to strike back at the people that did this to us. Well, I mean, you know, the, we all know, uh, we all got buddies that were working on Wall Street on September uh, 10th, 2001, and were in the military on September 12th, yeah, a lot 2001. Of enlisted, right. You know, Pat Tillman. I mean, guys, an NFL football player, right. and signed up. Uh, it, it's a, it, it's a pretty revenge is a, is a hell of a recruiting tool. We're talking to Jeremy Scale. The book is Dirty Wars. And there's just so many things I want to I want to get to on this. But when I when I talk to uh, Gregory Johnson, who I know, you know, really yeah, well, has been right. probably the best reporter about what's happening in Yemen uh, or even Ali Sufan, the mm-hmm. uh, the FBI uh, interrogator, agent interrogator, yeah. who is also a friend who, who, you know, obviously cracked the USS Cole investigation. You know, when you hear about Yemen and then hearing you and, and then hearing Faria al-Muslimi's testimony this week, a little bit of which we played earlier was the most impactful mm-hmm. of anything. The big question that he raised, which I wonder is, he said, if you wanted this guy who was the target in my village, I, I can tell you right now, we could have, there's plenty of people that would have turned him in. 
Jeremy Scale, do you believe that? Do you believe that really um, that there that we could capture some of these these uh, targets of, of drone attacks, that there would be other ways if they are indeed legitimate threats to America that that in, in is Faria right? Would, would it do we know where these guys are? Could we capture them or, or, or something else? I mean, I think there are some cases where that's probably not possible. But um, but from my my understanding of the way that Yemen works is that the Yemeni government is far from the most important player in the country. And, and a lot of the U.S. response has been to go to use Saudi Arabia as a proxy and to work with the Yemeni government. If the U.S. engaged in direct negotiations with the tribal leaders that control the areas where these al-Qaeda people are, um, and they and you incentivize them to hand them over, I, I think that you know the U.S. would do it. It requires actual diplomacy and negotiation and not drone strikes. But um, I think across the board, most tribal leaders in Yemen it, you don't see it in their best interest to be giving safe haven to people wanted by the United States. They don't want drone strikes in their areas. And I think... But as point is a very good one because, uh, you know, he was saying in the areas where you've done these strikes, you should come and give comp- pay compensation. That's what I heard all over. People would say to me, mm. you know, you you got compensation for the Lockerbie bombing. Um, you know, this this decision for the Lockerbie bombing. Oh. Where's our, where's our compensation? Oh, that's a really interesting argument that they that they even know that is also interesting. Yeah. Forgive my. And the guy who told the guy who first said that to me was this shady tribal sheikh who played both sides. He he was a guy who would negotiate getting hostages out of al-Qaeda. So he would work sort of with the U.S. or the Saudis on the one hand, and he also then was related to some of the people that uh, are in the leadership of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But I was, so, you know, he, these guys all also thought I was CIA. Like they, you know, because of how I look, they would right. often think, so they thought they were negotiating with me. And and so they're, they're trying to, you know, get the payment flowing. But he said to me, like, you know, we, these guys aren't posing a threat to us. You are now. So why, what's our motivation to hand these people over to you? To, to me, it was sort of an opening where he's saying, I mean, if I had been negotiating it for the U.S., I, I probably could have figured out a way to get Syed al-Shiri, one of the leaders of AQAP, handed over to me while I was in Yemen. I mean, I, I, I'm not even joking about that. I really think he was, he thought maybe he was negotiating with someone and I think, and was telling me, these guys are in Shabwa having dinner last night. Well, that, that raises a... So why aren't, why aren't CIA people down there talking to this guy and trying to, you know... To, to, I mean, you're going to deal with some shady people, but that's what CIA does. But that story raises a really interesting conflict that I would I would imagine you might find yourself in uh, when you are talking like that, and they do think you're CIA. And I I'm I mean I, I obviously we know you've got sources and in, in every um, intelligence agency in the government probably because they they're following you. But I mean you you do you feel like in, in that case you can contact someone from the agency and say hey listen. I mean, I know this. You you should know this because uh, too often I think that our intelligence agencies are finding out uh, a lot from from journalists like you. Do you find yourself? I, I think and, I it's mean, very dangerous. Uh, th- look, if, if I know it's ju- against uh, ethical, no, right? I, I, I mean, ethically, as a journalist, yeah, you're not supposed to do well, that. Well, yeah, but, but let me tell you what I think the problem is. With I mean, it's it's not just the ethical issue. There, the, we already have a problem with U.S. operatives using journalistic cover posing as journalists, which is why people think journalists are spies in a lot of cases, because th- this does happen. To me, if journalists start colluding with intelligence agencies from their own country in that way, um, you put all journalists at risk. Because we we have to be able to say to people, we are independent brokers here. We are not representatives of the government. We are not working for an intelligence agency. Our job is to provide information that people can use to make their own decisions. So in a case like that, I did the story that, I mean, I didn't tell the color part of it, which I'm telling to you, which is the which I think is interesting that these guys think I'm, I'm intelligence. But I, I, I quoted him in my piece saying, how is it that I can see Syed al-Shiri and Nasser Waheshi in a restaurant restaurant in Shebwa last week, um, but but you guys can't seem to find him with the drone and keep hitting the wrong people? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. hello, that's telegraphing a pass from this guy. He's saying, I know where these guys are, and they happen to be in this place having dinner last week. That's That's information that's actionable information from someone who knows these guys. So, I mean, but I, I, I would never, ever collude in any way with an intelligence agency because I think it's I, I think it's morally and ethically wrong, but I also think it puts journalists in So danger. if you knew bit where bin Laden was um, and you had you had you, you were you were sure of it, you wouldn't you wouldn't tell. Well, I mean, I if, if I did that, I probably would do a story about it. I mean, it's uh, you're saying, like, am I going to call Langley and yes. say, hey, I just found yes. Osama bin Laden? Yes. I don't think that would be the appropriate role of a journalist. I, I I think you hate America. Well, I mean, I I know I love journalists, and I don't want journalists to be killed for further uh, uh, enabling the per, the perception that we're spies. Do you 
right on uh, do you burn American flags to keep warm when you're reporting, Jeremy Scale? <laughs> I mean, but seriously, do you get accused? I mean, do you get those oh, types of accusations that, that I'm saying? Like, like because that's I don't think people understand. I mean, I don't think people understand the role of a journalist. And I think that I, I think that they really believe that you're supposed to do what I'm accusing you of supposed to be doing. Like you're supposed to be on the side of America. Look, I, I'm I am uh, I, I every day uh, for the past you know year or so get some form of hate mail. Um, I mean, and often the spelling is atrocious. I was called, <laughs> I was called the tater the other day. Like, a tater. A t a i t o r. I was like you know like later tater or something. Um, yeah, and I coddle the terrorists and all this stuff. But I mean, I I believe in the spirit of journalism, and I mean, I say that with every part of my being. I don't I don't believe that it's our job to mingle with the powerful and uh, do their bidding. There was a, a, a case where the New York Times uh, was aware that Raymond Davis, uh, who was this guy who was a Blackwater contractor, CIA guy, special ops guy, um, in Pakistan in uh, January of 2011, shot and killed these two guys um, in Lahore, Pakistan. Right. And it's unclear, were they trying to rob him? Were they ISI guys that were tailing him? What we do know is that he shot and killed them. He ends up in jail. The New York Times found out that Raymond Davis was, a, was CIA at a time when U.S. officials were saying that he was a diplomat um, and, and, and not only withheld that information at the request of the U.S. government, but continued to push stories that he was a diplomat. To, to me, that's crossing, that's crossing a serious line that has implications for other journalists. So you asked me about the bin Laden thing. It's, I wanted Osama bin Laden brought to justice. I, I, I would have loved to see Osama bin Laden put on trial for not, not just the crime of 9-11, but for all the other acts of terrorism that he was directing around the world. But but I don't think it's the role of a journalist to act as a spy. And and I I but, but I think the point that I'm getting to, to 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 put a really fine point on it, Jeremy Scahill, is a lot of Americans and readers, even of the New York Times, much less viewers of Fox News, uh, think that a a journalist and and for good reason, because there are plenty of journalists that do this are supposed to take sides. And the way I look at you, Jeremy Skeel, is the same way I look at an NBA referee. An NBA referee might be from Boston and grow up a Celtics fan, but if he's the referee uh, during the series between the Celtics and Knicks, he cannot favor the Celtics. As a journalist, uh, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to report on the bad things America does, the bad things that Al-Qaeda does, and not take sides. But one of the problems is in this new world, certainly at the beginning of uh, the Iraq War and even back in 91, these journalists become what what, uh, what become called embedded journalists, and they become protected by the Marines or any other unit that they are uh, supposed to be mm. reporting on. So if they witness a war crime in Fallujah, they can't go write it and then submit it to their editor and have it come out the next day and expect to receive protection from those same guys. I mean, that- Yeah, that, that's a great, I mean, you're making, that's that cuts to the heart of the problem with the embed system. I mean, I personally think that there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with having embedded journalism as long as we have unembedded journalism that's giving the other side. I mean, we should have journalists traveling with U.S. troops to, to, to give their side of the story. And they're, I mean, look, let's not act also like there's much embedded journalism going on anymore either. There's almost no coverage of what's happening with U.S. military forces in these countries. The problem is that the only coverage was embedded journalism, and the point you're making right. is a strong one. When you're with these guys and they're ke they're keeping you alive, they bailed you out of a firefight last week in Ramadi and saved your ass. Um, you, you're you're not going to be like, oh, well, this unit actually was cutting off fingers of uh, of some Afghan civilians yesterday and turning them into necklaces, which is like a, you know, which is a true story. Uh, there's a film called the uh, the Kill Team uh, that just premiered at Tribeca, which is about mm. the Striker Brigade and these guys who were setting up Afghans, killing them, and then claiming they'd been ambushed. And I mean, people should see that movie, The Kill Team. But, um, but the embed, you know, embedded journalists, that's you. It's almost like some kind of weird Stockholm syndrome. Uh, where, well, yeah. I mean, you can, you can understand that. It, but, right. but, but what about, you know, I feel like, and I hope that I'm wrong, I hope you're going to correct me, that I can count on, a, on, a, on just a couple of hands. Maybe I can use yours and Alfred's. Hopefully I can use a lot of hands to count how many independent journalists that there are that are out working, covering especially foreign policy issues, not to mention Wall Street or economic issues. And I, it doesn't seem like there are that many. And I feel like I know them all. I read them all. Uh, and and, and you, you're you one of them, obviously, uh, and one of the best. But there doesn't seem like there's enough. And I understand why there isn't that many, because why put yourself at risk and not make any money? 
Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, look, there's uh, I mean, I know people like um, C.J. Chivers of The New York Times, who is a fantastic reporter who's been doing great stuff from Syria. Michelle Shepard of the Toronto Star is a very is an amazing war reporter. And so I shouldn't be indicting uh, all these all these reporters that work for big outlets. Well, because and I don't I mean, I think I, uh, you know, I push back against people who just sort of, you you know, just say, well, the corporate media doesn't tell us there are some fantastic journalists who work for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal. Uh, the Guardian of London, um, but they're few and far between. And then you have all these independent journalists that no one's ever heard of who are actually doing great work for small websites. And then, not to mention the journalists who don't report in English, so we've never heard of them because it just sounds like gobbledygook. To, I mean, it's there are great, most of the, the great war reporters in the world are not Americans and are not reporting in English. They're mm. from, you know, they're from Turkey or from Poland. And they're, I mean, it's, it's true. You meet them in these war zones and they're the most generous of spirit journalists that you meet. Um, and, and they're, you know, they're not stingy. They'll say, oh, I have this car rented. You can come along with me. I mean, they're, it, you meet really kind people, um, but a lot of them are not famous in our sphere. They're well-known in their own countries. So, you know, I, I, I think that we have to be, look at the individuals, but there are great, great reporters. The problem is, and this is what you, what you were saying, you know, if you're a stringer and or a freelancer and you want to go to Syria um, you know, are you going to get insurance? How much is that insurance going to cost? You know how much like, you know, kidnap and ransom insurance for Syria is. And if you're a freelancer, you know, you're paying eight grand a year or, or, or more potentially to get insured, to go over there. Do you have any kind of training for if you get injured? I mean, that's how, that's how yeah, Tim Hetherington that... died. His yeah. colleagues didn't have any, oh, any really? paramedic training. He I bled have... out. And so, I mean, this is a great, you should have, I if you haven't had on Sebastian Younger, um, you know, who, who made Restrepo with Tim Hetherington, and, uh, and then and wrote, wrote the perfect book, storm the, and wrote the perfect storm. Yep. Um, you know, I've done a, a number of events with with Sebastian recently, and he has this group called Risk. Um, I think it's Reporters Invested in Saving Colleagues Lives is the um, is the name of the organization. And he runs these workshops. Uh, in fact, I think he's doing one this summer in the Bronx. They're only available for freelancers. And it's it's all it's 100 percent scholarship. And they pay for you to come and do training on uh, how to, to deal with a whole slew of injuries or wounds that could be inflicted in a war zone on you as a journalist. And and because the story of how Tim Hetherington died, it, his death was preventable. He was alive. They if they if his colleagues knew how to how to uh, stop the bleeding, he wouldn't have died before he got to that hospital. That. Is the is the belief. And so Sebastian I I was at a talk with Sebastian. He said he's not going to do this stuff anymore. That it's that that after Tim's death, he just he decided he's not going to be a war reporter anymore. And he started this organization to try to train journalists how to save their each other's lives. That's but that, that, I don't even know him, but that's his way of making sure that somebody's going to take his place. It is, yeah. And he's—I yeah. uh, mean, he—you know—he's a very humble guy when yeah. it comes to that. And I was really impressed. I, I hadn't known him personally until hmm. uh, you know a few months ago, um, but I've been telling people about that course because it's important. But but we were talking about the sort of economics of it. If you if you're a freelancer, you have to scrounge together money, go over to these places, and. Let, let, let's be honest. Uh, you, if you watch, uh, you know, Wolf Blitzer's uh, coverage on CNN, or you see what's happening over on MSNBC, it's it's like one step removed from you know Ramona and Erpino Grigio on The Real Housewives. I mean, it's how dare you? <laughs> how da- this interview is over? <laughs> Wolf is a friend. No, I totally agree. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And you're making you know so many great points about about the profession that you've chosen to pursue uh, and and done so well. And I'm not even doing a good job of uh, getting into the book. But we got to take a break, and we'll come back. And we'll talk a lot about dirty wars, about uh, President Obama, the Obama administration's kill team. And I want to ask you about the differences between the Obama administration and Bush administration, which is obviously timely when it does come to national security. Jeremy Scahill is here. He's in studio. If you're not following him on Twitter, you're missing out at Jeremy Scahill on Twitter. And if you don't get this book, you hate America. You hate puppies and, and you hate your own family. Dirty Wars. <laughs> Got an accompanying uh, film as well. DirtyWars.com, right? Uh, and I want to ask you before we get into the Can book. Can I tell you something about Dirty Wars? And then you say it. Every time I hear it now, I, I hear yeah, Dirty filled. Horse because uh, I was at the Dallas uh, Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you walk on these, uh, it's so totally bizarre world that I have somehow entered, but it's like there's an actual red carpet, which I had never been on before until I was at this festival circuit. And, uh, you know, you're going down the line and there's all these people from entertainment press and, and everything. And, and this one woman, and they're just like handed, uh, they're handed a piece of paper with your name they on no it. no idea who you film. are. And sometimes they, they don't, like at Sundance, I, multiple times I would have these women interviewing me who had like big hair and these huge fur things on. And they would say... So, 
Sundance and then put the microphone it's like that that's like the opening Go. question so like yeah i'd be like yes sunday uh so, so i'm at the dallas film festival and um you know most people are very nice and they have you know tried to find out something about you before they talk to you but occasionally they're just handed something and their job is just right. to get you to say something from the camera and this one woman you know her her producer i guess you'd call it whispered something in your ear and then she goes okay so we're here now with uh jeffrey and i said no jeremy and she's like okay tell us just tell us your name and i said jeremy scale and she said um the film is called Dirty Horse. So tell us about it. <laughs> and it's like, how am I supposed to? Deal no, but with you that? have such a like, good sense. Of it's a sequel. I yeah. said, well, it's a sequel to War Horse, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a much darker take. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, and and before we go back into the book, another kind of unimportant anecdote. But to me, it was cool to see. I don't know if you saw that. I retweeted that you ran into Matt Taibbi yesterday. I did yesterday in yeah, the street. And, and Matt's a, a, a good friend of mine in the show, and I love Matt, and I love you, and I think that you are two reporters um, that, that speak truth to power every single time you write, every single time you report. Your balls are, are made of steel. They're huge and all other <laughs> metaphors about your courage. And so to me, like at the beginning uh, of the I show— Can I quote that on my OK Cupid? Well, if you want a blurb— Let's just see. Let's uh, see. Can you say a big balls? You're not even single. You can't be single. you got to be— Are you in a relationship, Jeremy Scahill? What I, can you tell us? I'm, I'm not going to discuss my personal life with you, Pete. Off air. air, will you, will you date me? Would you? I'm married, but this is how I feel. Cause this is a very <laughs> gay thing. You and Taibi, like, I think you guys are awesome. And and before I even forget, I want to have you both in here to just have a roundtable discussion about journalism. You, you know, like, I'm in a relationship with Taibi. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I decided I will talk about it. Right. Oh, I did so not. The whole thing about it was a false flag. I, I ran ran into Taibi <laughs> on the street. Is actually flag. right. Exactly. Alex jo- Alex Jones. Just to send uh, them a tweet. Alex yeah, Jones is all right. over this. Uh, Taibi Scale uh, running into. We've got <laughs> pictures of them, and uh, and of course Scale tweets about it. So, somebody told me that Alex Jones shouted me out on his radio show yesterday. It's like you know, it's like uh, audio herpes or something. Like having like that good, happen right it's now. It's in like, a no. good way, saying good or bad. I, I yeah, I think in a good way. Oh, I mean, dear. it's. Uh, which is really problematic. I, I assume that the Boston task force could be like kicking down my door later tonight. So we want to know, because I have this, uh, I'm so excited that you and him just bumped into each other. Uh, Not Alex Jones, uh, Matt Taibbi. No, Tabby, yeah, Matt right? Taibbi. I have a vision of the whole thing going down. I won't explain all of it. I just want to know where you were. What block were you? Because I think it's right here on the corner, because it must be where <laughs> I hang out. No, it was like, it was in um, it was in Tribeca. I was on my way to uh, to go into the WNYC studio, and uh, Taibbi was coming out. Okay, and, uh right not as exciting as it as it may yeah. sound um you know he's a very tall man he is Matt very Taibbi. tall guy yeah and uh, he had on a very fashionable hat he always he's he's probably he's the worst guy. no he's nice the worst dressed guy i know you're joking right like he comes in he wears camouflage samba and a, and a necktie i'm like what the hell are you wearing Taibbi? um what is the difference between president obama's national security policies and and President Bush's. What are the big What are the big differences? But you know what's nice about being on your show, Pete, is that and it's very it's a it's a rare thing too. Is that you? I know are a very you're a very serious guy in many ways. You follow this stuff very closely, and occasionally you're able to like get a grain of truth stated on CNN's airwaves, which is always refreshing to see you there. Um, but we also can talk about Mark Sanford's personal life, uh, Matt Taibbi's uh, fashion choices. Uh, Alex Jones, um, and now you've just asked me a very serious question about the book that I was here to talk about. So it's a uh, it's my way of getting you to come in, knowing that this interview will be a little bit more fun. Plus, I know that you have an awesome sense of humor that that doesn't get uh, mined nearly enough in these types of interviews. But you know that I get attacked on Twitter. There's this whole meme about Jeremy Scahill never smiles, and it, you know, like there's people that think that I'm Can just you? like this. You know, very angry. Are you able to uh, smile? Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, I, I, uh, you know, one of the funny things about going Alex on, Jones says you have no muscles in your face. <laughs> I, um, when I go, you know, Bill, I love going on Bill Maher's show, and um, I, you know, I, I got to know them. Uh, I, I did some work for for Bill, um, covering the '08 election, and um, you know, his producers are amazing people and really, really funny. And one of his lead writers is Jimmy Vallelie, who is the main writer for Arrested Development, which is my favorite television oh, show. Yeah. And so whenever I go out there, uh, I, 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 I stay up late with Jimmy Vallelie and in the, in the, they let Bill Maher use the green room for the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn. That's like where you hang out afterwards. Oh, really? So, I, yeah, it's very palatial. It's a very nice thing. But I, I'm, I'm just constantly asking him like all these trivia questions about her. He must want to murder me. But um, I, I enjoy laughing. I enjoy, well, it's I enjoy a good comedy show. You know, you're funny. What's funny is when usually you get big laughs on that show, I notice. But what's funny is when you make a joke and you don't get laughs on Maher because – 
because people are shocked that Jeremy Scahill just made this joke. They don't. They can't get past that. They're like, "Wait, that was funny, but he's not. He's not allowed." I'm, 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 I'm building up my jokes for the one. Did you hear the one about how the CIA found a bride for a jihadist in Yemen? That's going to be my. It's going to clunk. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward um, to that. I think so it'll work it Obama out. Obama Bush. Um, yeah. You know. I, th- I think that, you know, under the Bush era or the Bush administration, it, they, they really were running sort of murder, Inc. I mean, if you look at what they did in Iraq, just the sheer volume of the killing was incredible and the lawlessness and the total disregard for Congress. And, um, you know, so, we, I mean, you can there are multiple books that are great that have been written about all of the horrid crimes of the Bush era. Obama, you know, campaigns on uh, on this pledge to sort of roll back all of that stuff. And he talks about closing Guantanamo. And this is, you know, this is all stuff that we know. And I think that uh, the broad perception in this country is that Obama has brought an end to all of these Bush policies, um, with the exception of Guantanamo still being open. What I found as I investigated this um, is that President Obama has either continued or expanded many of the most egregious aspects of the Bush uh, so-called counterterrorism policy. The drawdown in Iraq was not Obama's plan. It was the plan that was on Bush's desk when he left office. Obama surged forces in Afghanistan, expanded drone strikes, is cracking down, going after whistleblowers in an unprecedented way, um, and also has put on the kill list multiple U.S. citizens. And uh, and in a two-week period in Yemen in late 2011, three U.S. citizens were killed in strikes authorized by the president, including a, a 16-year-old kid. Well, I, who's the third? Al-Awlaki, his son. Right. And- so when Al-Awlaki, Anwar Al-Awlaki, who was whose story is the sort of spine of my book, and I tell yeah. his entire life story and the story of his family, a very fascinating. We often, we fail to ask, like, how do how do people become the caricatures that we see later my before they're killed? question and my favorite and- part about your book. But but see, that's what, like, we're all obsessed with who did the Boston thing and right. what why they did it and all of that stuff. Um I believe that that if we want to stop the kinds of actions that these people commit, we have to understand what exactly. makes them the way that they what are. What got I mean, me into right. this program after nine eleven? I said I was here in New York. I was in New York. I said why? Right. right. And and that's the the, th- the thrust of everything I do. I mean, I don't have the answers, but I've been asking why every day. So go ahead. Al-Laki. Well, the thir- so the third person killed. So Alaki was this guy who after nine eleven was on in the Washington Post, on NPR, on PBS. As a sort of moderate voice, um, condemning the attacks, but also talking about the challenges facing Muslims in a country that where there was this sort of mob mentality against Islam, and he was, you know, he said a lot of very, you know, important things and things that I think a lot of people would relate to. Um, and later in life, after becoming sort of radicalized by all of the wars and some of his personal experiences, ends up on the kill list, and uh, and so he's killed on September 30th, 2011, and in the vehicle with him was a Pakistani American kid named Samir Khan. And Samir Khan was, uh, you know, I, I get deep into his personal story, was kind of an internet jihadist while living in the United States and was posting videos of U.S. troops getting ambushed and, say, you know, and praising all these attacks on the U.S. And he had his own online journals. And Samir Khan had gone to Yemen and was the believed to be the original editor-in-chief of Inspire magazine, which is this al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula English-language magazine. And so Samir Khan and al-Laki were together in a car and they got killed. Um, but Khan's family had been told by the FBI that he had, there was no indictment against him and he hadn't committed any crimes. They were trying to get his family to get him to come back to North Carolina from Yemen when he was killed. And uh, so so you have those two killed. Then two weeks later, Al-Laki's 16-year-old son is killed while he's having dinner with his cousins outside. And, um, and you know, I dig deep into why that kid may have been killed because it seems like an impossible coincidence that you kill the father and then the son. And the son hadn't seen his dad in years. He had nothing to do with his father at all. Um, and so in this two-week period, these three Americans are killed. And very recently, actually, after the book came out, I met a former senior official. I don't hang out with these people ever personally, but I met a former senior official in the White House, Obama administration, who worked on the kill program. And I said to him, you know, if your line is that that kid was killed and it's sort of an outrageous mistake or collateral damage, why not just say that? Because people, you know, a lot of people believe or suspect that you, you guys intended to kill him because his name was Al-Laki. He's the son of this guy. Like, if it makes no sense. It's almost impossible. So why not just tell people— yeah. You know, we fucked up and then and, and pay compensation or do something. And he said, well, look, and this is this is, this is a direct quote. He said, look, we had just killed three Americans in a two week period, two of whom weren't even targets. Samir Khan and the kid, Abdul Rahman Awlaki. That doesn't look good. It was embarrassing. So the, the answer is you don't say you don't admit you did it because it's embarrassing. It's like thinking political strategy instead of actually owning that you I'm not sure where that hurts them. I'm not sure where that hurts them politically at home and certainly not 
anywhere else. It's not like there's all this outrage in this country uh, over this. It's just, you know, it's it's a fringe issue. Almost no one ever at the White House has asked a question about any of this stuff. You know, you and, and, and a bunch of other reporters. Jake Tapper is like the one person who would ask real questions yeah. uh, in the front row at the White House. Uh, Scahill and, and, and a handful of, of other reporters like Glenn Greenwald and, and, and so on have been talking and writing and reporting, especially in Jeremy's case, about these drone attacks. And, and I've only got two minutes left, Jeremy. But, I mean, you guys are the re- really the only ones, in my opinion, that are keeping this issue. There's a whole bunch of people. Marcy Wheeler is fantastic from emptywheel.net. She's great. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole yeah. bunch of people. But these are without, without this group of reporters that are doing what you're doing and talking about these drones and, and, and I think uh, uh, framing it the way that you do – um, we would care even less about it, including me. I wouldn't know about it and I wouldn't care about it. The problem is you can't convince you, you can't convince those Americans um, uh, that that it's illegal or wrong or bad uh, to kill, uh, assassinate uh, Al Qaeda members in some cases, even just for being Muslim, obviously. you know. But I'm not pretty- I mean, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting point you raise because <clears throat> it's not I, I, like it's not that I don't think that the United States has a right to A, defend itself, or B, try to bring to justice anyone that's that's plotting terrorism against us. The question, the, the, I don't need, that's not even the debate. The debate is, how do we effectively do that? And how do we do it in a way that doesn't uh, open the door for more of yes. the threat that yeah. we, so what I'm saying, I mean, I think, you remember when George Ryan, when he was governor of Illinois, uh, now I think he's in prison, but he, when yeah. he was the governor of Illinois, yeah. he, um, he called the moratorium on the death penalty, and it and it exists to this day in Illinois. They, yep. There's there is they ended the death penalty. Why? Why did they do it? Not because he was morally opposed to the death penalty, because he, there had been so many innocent people that had been put to death that that later were it's shown not to be good right, policy. What? Right. So they call a moratorium on it to say we need to review the whole system. Um, which I mean, I wanted to go further. I'm I'm actually very much opposed to the death penalty. I think it's a savage thing for a country like ours to to be engaged Me in. Too. But I'm making a tactical point, which is that. The drone war has reached a point where we're killing people whose identities we don't know, where we're enraging people that may have been predisposed to be our allies before we went and bombed their village. We should call a moratorium on it and say, let's let's actually analyze on the ground, find responsible human rights partners on the ground in these countries, and let's do an assessment of the impact to our national security of our own drone strikes. To, to me, that's a sensible approach to this, and to ask that question and make it an open debate, and Congress should be talking about it. Have these strikes made us safer or put us at greater risk? Have we killed more people than we've created yep. as terrorists and as that's a result the, of our And policy? that's the debate that, that we should be having while we have that moratorium. But instead we have Rand Paul, you know, being like the, the only person that raised this stuff on the Senate floor. And then, you know, and then yeah. the next week he's talking about how the Civil Rights Act was the worst thing since, you know, Hitler. Dirty Wars, the world the world is a battlefield is uh, is an awesome book. It's out now. I hope it becomes a New York Times bestseller, just like Jeremy Scahill's last book, uh, Blackwater. You should get it. Jeremy, thanks so much for ending our week. If it we doesn't, I'm just gonna put it. I'm just gonna put a seller. <laughs> it's, <laughs> no, that's a seller. My, sells. My parents did buy it. Yeah. Uh, at Jeremy Scahill on Twitter. Thanks for uh, listening. Think for yourself. Look it up. Be the change you want to see in the world. We'll talk to you on Monday.